Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 59, where we're going to cover the findings from the SDRS related to the previous month, the month of December. My name is Edison Magalhães here at the SDRS studio. Hi, my name is Giovanni Trevisan at the SDRS. Hi, my name is Guilherme, also at SDRS. Hello, Daniel Linhares with uh, SDRS. And today, as usual, we're going to go uh, through the findings, as I mentioned, from the previous month related to the to the SDRS, but also we have a discussion with our invited guest, special guest today. We, here we have Dr. Clayton Johnson. Uh, Dr. Johnson uh, is a partner in veterinary at Cartage, Cartage Veterinary Service, located in Cartage, Illinois, and he obtained his DVM and executive veterinary uh, certificate from the University of Illinois. Dr. Johnson has an international reputation on bioeconomic models and strategies to manage swine disease worldwide. Dr. Johnson, thanks for, for accepting our invitation and welcome to the Swine uh, Disease Reporting System podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Edison. Uh, great to be a part of it. Um, I appreciate all the work you guys do for the industry. Happy to contribute to your podcast here today. Very good. So now before we start our discussion with Dr. Clayton Johnson, uh, let's cover the findings from the previous month of December on this report, the, the report 59, as I mentioned. So here, when we move to the first page of the report, uh, here's the page that covers PCR detection of PERS. So there are many different charts with different information. But here we can see that the, the red line represents the percentage of uh, the observed percentage of positive cases for, for the, this time of the year. And is within the, the predicted bands for this time of the year. And when we break down by age category, the, this percentage of positive case, we can see there is a slight decrease in the red line here, which is winter market from November to December. There was a slight decrease, but with an increase from November to December in South Farm, the percentage of positive cases. Overall, important to note here that the, the highest detection of the lineage 1C variant, uh, the RFLP144, since its emergence with 357 sequences in November 2022, as we can see here, and over 200 in December. Uh, Iowa has been the most, more than 1,000 sequences detected of this uh, variant, becoming the most predominant state. And Missouri, for example, jumped from six sequences in 2021 to over 200 in 2022. And one of the comments of the advisory group that several PERS outbreaks have been occurring with this lineage uh, 1C variant strain, which contributed to the high activity of this strain in Iowa. And the outbreaks have been concentrating in road to finish size and had increased lateral outbreaks uh, that seems to have leveled off in, in, in December. And even though there was a decrease in PERS detection in growing sites in December, uh, the high activity in November increased the pressure of infection in South Farm. So we're going to keep a lie on, on this because we see a slight increase here in the South Farm age category in December compared to November. Another comment important here is that the, the lineage 1C RFLP124, uh, uh, the detection has continued to increase since the, the high activity that started in August, where reported in the SDRS in, in August. So it's, it's still increasing. So in 2022, the number of sequence of this strain jumped from 116 uh, to 240 cases, so more than double being detected, especially Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, uh, Iowa, Missouri, and Minnesota since since November. Another comment from the advisory group related to the lineage 1C variant, the, the 144 strain, we, we saw that it's the most predominant in most of the states, but in states that are especially uh, east of the Mississippi River, uh, this lineage, th there's, this pattern is, is not observed. So they, they 
mentioned that this might be due uh, the low number of pigs coming into this site and more coming out from, from these states to other areas, to the Midwest, for example. So this might be the reason uh, that we are not seeing uh, the, the one for lineage 1C variant 144 strain there being the most predominant. When we move here to the enteric coronavirus page, uh, overall we can see a moderate increase in the percentage uh, of, of positive cases for Delta coronavirus and PED from November to December. And we're going to keep a, keep an eye on, on that, but overall we think the, the, the expected values for the predicted bands. The third page is the page that covers mycoplasma and PCV2. And important to note here that the, we are seeing the lowest detection of mycoplasma in sow farms since 2010 for this year. So we can see here the blue line in the chart, which is the sow farm percentage of positive cases. This trend for this year, it's been the lowest uh, since 2010. So important to note that. The next page is the page that covers flu, swine influenza virus. And one important thing that occurred here is that comparing December to November, there was a big drop in the number of positive cases here from, from November to, to December. And the advisory group highlighted that the influenza virus was very active in, in November and the decreasing detection in December is aligned with field observation of less activity, indicating that the, the influenza virus activity peak may be, may be over. Uh, we, don't, we didn't see that trend uh, in other years, for example, 2021, 2020. So it's, this was a, a good finding here. We see this trend occurring this year specifically, a, a big, big drop here in the number of cases, positive cases. And the last page of the report, which is the page that covers tissue diagnosis, especially, specifically from the ISU VDL data. Here we are breaking down by the systems that the, the, these pathogens are being diagnosed, so digestive, respiratory, nervous, and this chart will show the most predominant uh, pathogens being diagnosed. So you can see, for example, if for digestive, E. coli and rotavirus are the, the major ones, the, the big circles here. But one important thing to notice uh, from this month that is that here in our data we are seeing a big increase uh, an increase in, in the diagnosis for specific, specifically Delta coronavirus and PD. So we're going to keep a, an eye on that. So that was it in terms of the, the, the major findings from the SDRS uh, report of this month. Now let's move on to the, to the discussion with Dr. Clayton Johnson. So Dr. Johnson, the, we understand that the industry has made several progress towards purse control an elimination, right? If you think about biosecurity, uh, diagnostics, vaccination, herd closure, so on and so forth. But yet we don't really talk much about uh, regionally or nationally eliminating or eradicating completely the disease, right? What's or the virus? What's what's missing in that puzzle? How can we advance so that 10 years from now we're really talking about a regional or national eradication program? Well, Daniel, I, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, let's start with what we know. Um, we know how to prevent first introductions into swine farms. Um, there are certain technologies and techniques that you need to have to be successful with, with biosecurity, but we know what those technologies and techniques are, right? We can prevent introduction from really any of the potential routes of introduction that are out there. Uh, again, not all farms are set up with those technologies, and a lot of that comes down to being cost and 
efficiency. Um, you know, farms that don't break frequently with PERS struggle to invest in additional biosecurity infrastructure because their their cost of PERS, so to say, simply doesn't always justify that level of investment at that individual farm. But we know how to prevent PERS introductions. We also know how to eliminate PERS at the farm level. Um, we know how to put together a plan. It's not anything novel. Right, load close expose or depop repop are both effective options to eliminate PERS at the farm level. So we know how to prevent PERS and we know how to eliminate. Where I think we struggle at the industry level is with some sort of aligned goals. Um, everybody has their own strategy for how they want to manage PERS or what success in PERS management looks like. For some individual farms, being PERS naive is the only option. They won't entertain any other option. Uh, maybe they are a multiplier farm that produces genetics or a boar stud that, that produces semen. And uh, having PERS at any level, vaccination, wild type, is just not an option. Um, for other producers, maybe uh, they are in dense areas and choose to use a modified live vaccine. Um, so they are living with some level of PERS on their farm, even if it's just a vaccine. For other producers, they, they say, hmm, eliminating wild type is not my choice. I'm going to live with a wild type infection. and I'm going to continuously expose my guilt uh, to, to the wild type herders that I think I have on my farm. And so you get these kind of different goals, different scenarios relative to the infection status at each farm that ultimately compromises sometimes what you want to do at your farm. Um, I always tell producers that the neighborhood purse status is going to be the neighborhood purse status, meaning that if there's somebody in the neighborhood that has purse, you're probably going to inherit it from that other producer or that other farm at some point. And so you really need aligned goals across producers, across farms, um, regionally, in order to have an overall regional outcome. And if, if eradication is, a, is an industry goal, it would have to be something that all producers agreed upon, all producers pursued simultaneously. And you can imagine the difficulty with pulling that off, the difficulty with getting all producers to say, we're going to accept this first strategy, uh, particularly if eradication is the goal. Um, it's just hard to get that sort of alignment, hard to get that sort of industry inertia to go put all those individual farms through the eradication process simultaneously and get everyone to accept that kind of long-term vision that that's best for the industry. The other thing I would add there, Daniel, is that all of our biosecurity barriers we put in place are effective, but inevitably they do select for future strains of PERS that can evade those barriers, okay? And I think you can look back at time, in time and help understand. When, when we were all young and getting involved in the pig industry, PERS was more of a sexually reproduced virus, right? When boars naturally mated gilts and sows, there was transmission of PERS through that natural mating event. And as we stopped the natural mating and went to artificial insemination, we probably selected for viruses that were more respiratory in nature. Now, as we went to multi-site production, right? We probably selected for viruses that were capable of aerosol transmission because the virus has to find a new host. So if the new host is just the next barn, the virus doesn't have to effectively transmit very well, right? The virus doesn't have to travel through the air very well or live outside the host very long. But as we go to multi-site production, 
Now the virus does need to have additional properties that evade our biosecurity restrictions to jump from one host population to another. Um, and it's just an unintended consequence of the efforts we've made towards biosecurity that we somewhat select for viruses that can sustain themselves in our industry. And with a virus like hers that mutates all the time and mutates with no strategy. You know, we often think of the mutation as like the, the, the bad actor that the virus intentionally created. The virus just spews out genetic mutants into the environment and lets the environment dictate which ones get to survive and which ones get to sustain. So it's kind of an inevitable consequence that when we put barriers around the virus, we naturally select and promote the strains that are able to evade those barriers. Well, that that reminds me of uh, uh, it's a it's a good point that we select for virus and things that occur. But if you look for the SDRS date, there was science the last couple of months. There was one specific strain of PERS virus that's named. Uh, according to lineage 1C, LFLP124. And we start to see this strain to be detected in a couple of more states, and it's kind of creating a, a, a shape there of increased activity. I don't know if you had experience with that in the field, but if you had, could you share your thoughts about what's your experience with that strain and what is your thought about this new strain that has been detected there? Yeah. You know, Giovanni, it seems like we were just talking about the most recent new strain, and so it's discouraging to me that we're already talking about another very different strain that appears to be evading some of our biosecurity practices. But that's the reality, I think, that we're looking at. Um, I know uh, producers in Illinois, producers in Missouri, um, that have been challenged by this new strain that you mentioned. Um, those producers are seeing a wide range of impact to their farms. Um, you know, we see a, a range in virulence with all strains of hers, but I'd say this has been surprisingly, surprisingly variable in terms of the outcome. Um, I, I know of some producers that have been infected with this strain and have um, noticed it, have had a, a hers impact, but let's call the impact moderate at best, not a disastrous impact. I know of other producers that have had disastrous impacts. Um, I know of producers that have uh, lost 20% of the pregnant animals in their herd in a three week period from this virus. And with uh, about 16% of that being abortions. So 16% of all the pregnant animals aborted within a three week period. And the other percent being sow death. Just, they, they lost 4% of their sow inventory in a three week period. Um, and that particular producer actually was a vaccinated herd was a herd that theoretically should have one of the better outcomes against any strain of wild type birds. So it's been frustrating for producers in terms of the variability of outcomes that they've seen from moderate to extremely severe. Um, and I would say it's also been a bit surprising the, um, for the variation that we see in the homology or heterology of the sequences. Um, normally when you have a new strain, you, you don't see a lot of variation in at least the OR5 sequence. You know, if you sequence the OR5 from one producer to another, it's maybe 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3% different on OR5. In this particular virus, we see up to 2% variation from one farm to another. So to me, that suggests that it's not a brand new variant, but for some reason, it's very effective at transmitting um, in the area where we see a lot of pigs here in Illinois and Missouri. And it's transmitted across production systems. It's transmitted across geographies. 
Um, and much like we heard of with the, the variant lineage 1C, 144, um, we have seen it transmit uh, in unique ways, let's call it. Um, and you already have some veterinarians and producers questioning is, you know, is this a situation where like the, the lineage 1C variant 144, um, we're producing more virus particles per pig infected. And that's potentially one of the reasons why we're seeing the transmission at such a high level is that there's just so much virus being produced by each individual pig that gets infected that the environment is more heavily contaminated. There's more logs of virus. And as we know with disinfectants, right? disinfectants reduce logs of virus, but they don't necessarily take every virus to zero if you're starting with billions and billions of viral particles. Dr. Johnson, still talking about Paris virus, but now moving to a different strain right now, the L1C variant, 144, that the last month in the SDRS, we had the highest number of detections since 2020. Over 300 sequences were detected uh, and classified as this lineage and RFLP. And also we can see that the scenario is changing. So we had most of the detections uh, in 2021 concentrating in Minnesota and Iowa. And now we are having these detections in South Dakota, Nebraska, and even Missouri, there is a having another high number of detections. So why the industry is having so much problem to control this specific strain? And also why some of these regions like Illinois and Indiana that we have just few detections do not become like these epidemic regions of this specific strain L1C variant? Great, great questions, Peter. Um, you know, I think uh, to, to your first question about um, you know, why are we having so much trouble with this virus and why is it moving so much? Um, you know, I don't know is the most honest answer, but to speculate, one of the things that's very unique with that virus is the, the volume of virus that we see in infected pigs. And we generally infer the volume of virus based on the CT counts of the PCRs that we do. Um, and we've learned with PED that we can get some really low CT counts. Um, we also see it with PCV2, um, you know, and it seems like with each pathogen, there's kind of a range of CTs that you see. Um, but those ranges may be highly variable pathogen to pathogen. Historically, with first viruses, um, you know, we would see a range of maybe uh, uh, the high teens up to the low 20s on acute infections. Um, and with the, the, the lineage 1C uh, variant 144, we've seen much lower CT um, and uh, as I understand it with CTs, you know, every uh, two and a half to three and a half CTs, you're talking about another log of virus. Um, and a log of virus means a tenfold increase in virus. So as you move from one log to another, you move from 10 to 100 to 1,000, 10,000. Um, so every drop in, you know, two and a half to three and a half CTs is a big, big difference in the volume of virus that gets produced. And I often tell producers the, the, the battle of, pathogens is very much a numbers game. And what I mean by that is it's no different than a, than a war, right? Good guys versus bad guys. And the bad guys in this situation are the number of virus particles. And you can almost think of them as soldiers. Um, so as, as an infected pig is producing a lower CT count, it's producing a lot more bad soldiers. There's a lot more bad soldiers that are entering the fight in favor of first transmission. And, you know, I mentioned disinfection before. If you read disinfectant labels, they will all have some sort of claim regarding the number of logs that they can reduce. Um, but they don't, you know, their claim is never, we take it to zero. You know, if you, if you read on like a bottle of ice, say it's 99.99% of the 
loop or something like that. Mm-hmm. They never say we remove 100% because the reality is that enemy army can always be greater than what our intervention can be. Um, good guys versus bad guys, right? Um, so I think that's the first thing that we have to recognize with that variant virus is it produces a lot more virus than its ancestors. And it's just a lot more stress on all of our biosecurity strategies to be perfect every time. Um, you know, your second question on why do we see it geographically um, in some areas and, and sustain and become endemic in some areas, but maybe not in others. I think a lot of that comes down to um, at the end of the day, a lot of virus first strain introduction into new areas is just hers that comes in with bean pigs. And um, pigs move across the Mississippi River, but they don't move across the Mississippi River from west to east very often. Most of the time, if pigs are moving across the Mississippi River, they are moving from the east to the west, okay? Um, and with Iowa and Minnesota being obvious areas of concentration, that's where the packing plants are, so that's where the growing pigs are going to be. Um, and so I think that's a lot, a lot of it. That's what it comes down to. If, if the variant virus would have started in North Carolina, I think absolutely we would see it move you know, through Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota. But those viruses that start on the west side of the Mississippi River, whether that's Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, whatever, they don't really move east. They're not going to make it back to North Carolina or Indiana or Illinois because the pigs simply don't move that direction. Yeah, that makes sense. Dr. Johnson, now let's switch gears to, to PED. Our last question for you here today. So for PED in 2021, for example, we had the lowest uh, detection of this virus since its emergency in 2013. On the other hand, in 2022 this year, uh, the levels of PED detection increased again, and they are above the expected uh, uh, values for the, this virus based on the, the SDRS algorithms. So in your opinion, what the industry can do to control this virus using uh, the windows of, of opportunity? Uh, as we see, there is some, some seasonality, some seasons that we can, we have a lowest uh, detection, so we can take advantage of that. Uh, so what's your opinion on that? What, how can we take advantage the, as a w- industry of these windows, and also should we think about PD elimination programs? Yeah, to your last question, Edison, I would say yes. Absolutely, we should think about PED elimination programs. Um, the reality is the U.S. wine industry is going to have to eliminate disease at some point. It may not be PED. It may be a foreign animal disease. Um, but it's been a long time since we have practiced disease elimination. We have, we have some nice historical track record with pseudorabies. And I can remember um, as, a, as a young man being involved in some pseudorabies eradication events. My, my dad's a mixed animal veterinarian. And as soon as I was big enough to hold pigs, to snare pigs, to help him to bleed for the pseudorabies eradication events, I was, I was a, a full-time weekend and night job for me. <laughs> um, so we've got history, right? We've done this in the past. But there aren't many people who remember those uh, eradication days of pseudorabies. Um, and PED is a very different virus, but I think um, if nothing else, we should target a disease like PED that has existing value today, that has value for U.S. producers if we eliminate it. Um, but we also need to think more broadly than just the value of PED. We need to think the value of practicing that, practicing that where it's not the government telling us there's exactly what you're going to do in this disease control situation. 
right? Because if, if we start to practice with ASF or foot and mouth, producers are not going to be in control of those decisions, okay? So um, we have an opportunity here to lay out our own pathway to demonstrate success in managing a foreign animal-like disease elimination process. And if we can do that, we will get a big leg up, big uh, set of lessons learned to apply to future disease elimination processes, which we won't control the timeline on. And we may have to do very, very, very urgently with more limited information than we have about PE. So I'm 100% in favor of the industry promoting the discussion on PE elimination, talking about the barriers. That's where the discussion has to happen, right? What are the reasons we can't do this? What are the reasons we won't? and then talk about putting industry resources towards those barriers. That's how you put together a plan for a big project like that. Um, you know, will we actually do it? To be determined. But I think the discussion has to exist as often and as frequently as it can, and at the highest levels of decision makers in our industry, because ultimately everybody has to be bought in at that. Um, PED is a bit of a unique disease in how it transmits and where the reservoir of infection um, and I truly believe the reservoir of infection of PED is in those market pigs, and particularly right now in the winter. Um, when packing plants get contaminated with PED, we tend to see a lot of our actively marketing finishing sites or weed to finish sites become contaminated from transport uh, biosecurity uh, failures. When I say failures, that's probably not fair. Um, a lot of producers don't take any biosecurity um, risk mitigation steps when they're marketing their commercial market pigs, meaning they accept dirty trailers to come to their farm. And, and I'm not shooting uh, bullets at anybody. The reality is we don't have enough trough wash infrastructure to wash all the market on trailers and dry all the market on trailers tomorrow. We said that we wanted to do that. But it's, it's the obvious resource that we can apply to PED and lower the level of finishing pig infection with PED. And I think doing that will inherently lower the level of sow infection. If we get rid of the wet reservoirs and market finishing pigs, I think we'll see the, the numbers of PED infections in our sow farms go down. Why are we seeing a worse year this year than in previous years? I don't know is, again, my best answer, but I'm on here to speculate, so I'm always happy to do that. Um, if I had to speculate, I would say that uh, labor issues are probably some of the challenge, and specifically labor issues within the transportation industry. Um, you know, we in the big industry know the labor issues on our, on our farms. Um, we have a hard time sourcing labor for our farms right now. I can assure you that the same is true for transportation companies, and that's true for labor not only for the truck drivers, but also for their truck washes. Um, you know, when we're short on drivers, when we're short on washes, uh, or the ability to do a good wash job, shortcuts are going to happen. Um, if we don't have drivers, we're not going to have the downtime. If we don't have employees at the truck wash, we may not be able to wash as many trailers as we would ideally want to. And so that would be the biggest thing that I would point out is maybe something unique to this winter is there's just a lot of stress on the labor market. Uh, transporting pigs is a difficult job, a thankless job, and working in our truck washes is a difficult job and a thankless job. And so I have to imagine that for some producers in some situations, they're making compromises that they don't want to make because the reality is they don't have any other options. Oh, very good. Yeah, that was it for this, uh, this edition, guys. Thanks, Dr. Johnson, for, for joining us. It was a very good discussion uh, on PERS and, and PD, very good thoughts. And I hope to see you guys next month. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for the opportunity to contribute.
Thank you. Thank you.